Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Okay, let me intro the series again, just in case you're new or it's been a little while. This series is entitled Shining in Babylon. It is declaring out loud the central point, the central thesis of the book of Daniel, that the people of God are in a dark place, Babylon, but they are meant to still reflect the goodness of God, even when they are out of power, out of control, do not have a functioning temple, are not culturally dominant. They don't get to decide anything. And I believe the book of Daniel is always important, but Christians in Western culture in the United States, we can feel it now more than even just 20 years ago, let alone 50 or 60 years ago. Christianity is less and less becoming the dominant influence in the United States, and the bright silver lining to that dark cloud is maybe, just maybe, those of us who love Jesus are going to finally wake up to the fact that the church was the light of the world. Sorry, Ronald Reagan. America was never the light of the world. I know he didn't mean anything by it, but the whole city on a hill thing was borderline blasphemy. I'm sure he was well-intentioned, but the church is a city on a hill. We are. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. If you believe and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are now a part of the church no matter what your nationality. It doesn't matter if you're American or Canadian or Chinese or Thai, there is one bride of Christ by grace through faith. The book of Daniel now just goes, wait a minute. Uh, we don't get to define marriage. We don't get to define that a man is a man or a woman is a woman. Like we, The church does not, we don't, Ten Commandments uh, removed from courthouse steps. All of these things that show the church does not have the influence in America that we had 70 years ago. And the God of the book of Daniel just doesn't seem to be worried. Man, we can pass the plate around. I, I, this sermon's done. You and I, we lose our minds. Oh my gosh, the world's getting darker. And I feel like God, through the book of Daniel, is kind of whispering back, hey, um, Babylon's always been lost. Babylon behaved a little bit more like Israel at one, at one time. The, the surrounding environments and Babylon, you know, really, Jerusalem. Let, let me rewind it. Let me say it this way. Before you guys were carried off into captivity, was there plenty of idolatry back in Israel? Yeah, there's always been darkness. It was Baal and Asherah. It was the gods of the Philistines. There's always been darkness. I just love you enough to carry you off into ba uh, Babylon so you can finally see the darkness. I'm excited at the idea of Christians in America finally accepting that it is up to us to shine the light and love of Jesus Christ, not to try to win a culture war. I'm excited about that. This is what takes us away from our idolatry of politics. If the church is the hope of the world, and to be specific, the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through the church, if we're the hope of the world, then we don't have to grasp to lesser things. Because if you'll notice through the book of Daniel, Daniel is the second highest. He is the second most politically powerful, influential person. Does he use his influence in a godly way? Of course. And he'll lay down his life by praying out a window three times a day if he's got to. <laughs> he is submitting to Yahweh first. And he submits to his king 
his earthly king as much as he can, but there are limits because of that king's sin and wickedness. So in this series, we saw for the first half of the book, these unbelievable stories of faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, of, oh my gosh, I don't know if I would have what it takes if I were in that situation. And that's kind of the point. It's, it's God in us and through us that creates courage. Um, but uh, they're, ex- they're exemplary nonetheless. The second half of the book of Daniel has all of these prophetic visions that if we're honest in our Bible reading plan, when we come up through this, these weird visions of rams and goats, we're tempted to skip by. And I want to submit to you that the reason we skip by it is because of the Enlightenment. There was a major philosophical movement in the West 350, 400 years ago that basically convinced us that all knowledge is gained intellectually. It kind of abandoned the heart. It definitely abandoned the spiritual realms. And it said everything can be put under a microscope or in front of a telescope. And that's just ludicrous because how do you then explain love? How do you explain justice with a microscope? Huh? Peace, joy, wrath, sadness. I can think of all things that are, all kinds of things that are very, very real that don't go under a microscope very well. So the Enlightenment is inherently taking half or more of the human experience and just chopping it off. So when we come up on prophetic literature, we cannot imagine God giving us a text that we are not supposed to intellectually understand all of it in detail. We're not okay with ambiguity, which means we're not okay with God being God. I'm so glad I came to church this week. What I'm trying to say is what I've said before. Some prophetic literature, if we are humble enough, we are doing our very best to interpret what we think it means for the future, but we should hold those interpretations loosely most of the time because, are you ready for it? We can see all of the messianic, everything in Isaiah, things in Leviticus, all these things pointing to Messiah. And when Messiah came 2,000 years ago, we were wrong about 90% of it. And we can look now, we, in the church, 21st century church, we can look back and see clearly how Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. And we go, oh, it's all so clear now. Because hindsight's 2020. But those of us who were learned and studied the scriptures, we had all kinds of interpretations coming up to the birth of Jesus that were wrong. Some were right. But if you look at Anna and Simeon, the people who were ready for Messiah were ready spiritually, not intellectually. They were yearning for their Messiah. They wanted to worship. They wanted to fall on their face. And so the people who were learned couldn't even walk five miles to Bethlehem to go worship him when he was born. That's recorded in Matthew 2. The learned people missed the boat. They weren't interested. So we come up on texts with these visions and stuff and we think, we assume that it is our job to study to the point of analyzing and understanding when scripture only ever says you are to analyze to the point of obedience. Ooh, oh, that hurts. That hurt. Because I want to understand it all before I obey. Right? That is the idolatry of the enlightenment. Lord, I will obey you when I understand. I was, you guys don't know because you can't see into my heart, but I was sitting over here for five songs this morning doing war. 
I listened to an unbelievable sermon Friday night about expressiveness and worship and lifting of hands all throughout the Psalms. And you see, and I'm wrestling intellectually with what is culturally Hebrew from 3,000 years ago and what is just Greg obey. Just obey. He's worthy when you don't understand. I, I'm, I've been doing war. I'm still in war as I preach to you right now. Greg, are you going to obey some things? Can we just all agree obedience is the hard part? That's why we study and study, study. Understanding is not the hard part. Obedience is the hard part. So that's, our, uh, that's my intro, if you will, to the back half of Daniel. There are things about the bigness of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, his ownership of the future. All of the things that we need the most from the back half of the book are really, really clear. The clear parts, and the same for Revelation, if you're in Revelation, is God on his throne? Is he good? Is he just? Is he patient with sinners? All of these things are really, really clear. Even if some of the imagery might confuse us. So let's read the text. I'm in Second Chronicles and that would make for an odd sermon. So Daniel 9. We're going to read the whole chapter. It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. For those of you who went to university and got educated beyond your intelligence, they love to tell you that the Bible got created by a council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and yet Daniel says that while Jeremiah is still living, he is by the Spirit able to recognize that Jeremiah's words were scripture. Okay? Peter says the exact same thing about Paul's words. He calls Paul's words scripture while Paul is still living. God is bigger than you and I think. Verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This is most of the chapter is this prayer. Are you guys ready for a blessing? You, 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 sometimes we get things because we anticipate. Are you ready for God to feed your soul? I am. Let's listen to our brother pray. O oh Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. So far in this prayer, who's the hero? So dare to be Daniel? Right? If you're going to dare to be Daniel, it's actually a very low view of self. I am a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips, like Isaiah, right? Verse six. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are in the right. But as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. Did you just hear that bad circumstances amongst the people of God are the just punishment and correction from God, not God, not God being mean? Did you hear that? Oh, boy, could we, get, we could go so far. We could go so far if we just say, in these tough circumstances, Lord, what is it you're trying to teach me? I want to learn. I want to receive. Verse 8. 
O Lord, we and our kings, princes, and ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has disobeyed your instructions and turned away, refusing to listen to your voice. What he's saying in all of this is, Jeremiah said we're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and God, you are not evil in the slightest. I get it. 70 years, yeah, I get it. I really do. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured down on us because of our sin. You have kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. Never has there ever, sorry, never has there been such a disaster as happened in Jerusalem. Every curse written against us in the law of Moses has come true. Yet we have refused to seek mercy from the Lord our God by turning from our sins and recognizing his truth. Therefore, the Lord has brought upon us the disaster he prepared. The Lord our God was right to do all of these things, for we did not obey him. O Lord our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. But we have sinned and are full of wickedness. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Did you see that? Turn away your wrath in view of your mercy, not because we deserve. And by the way, that is the definition of mercy. I deserve for bad things to happen. I am condemned by my own sin. And I'm going to ask for mercy anyway because you are good. Anybody here, Jesus died for you because you were awesome? That doesn't even make sense right? He stands in the place of wrath on the cross you and I should have borne because of who he is. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. So the consequences of human sin is not just that we are divorced from God, but we're the people of God and we have defamed your honor and glory. Everybody's laughing And Daniel feels this as a tragedy. This is the exact thing that was burning in David's bosom when he was 15 years old. And he goes, who is this dog that would defy the armies of the living God? And he grabs some stones and goes and does what the spirit would have him to do. David wasn't defending himself. He was not defending the armies of Israel. He did not have a political agenda. Somebody stood against the armies of the living God and he got ticked. You don't, you don't speak blasphemy against Yahweh like this. I'll grab some rocks. Verse 17. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord. Smile again on your desolate sanctuary. For whose sake? Why should God smile on his desolate sanctuary, according to Daniel? No, I'm asking you to look in the text. For your own sake, Lord. Daniel is taking secular humanism out back and he's he's crushing it over and over and over. 
Because we do this in the church all the time. We say, oh yes, God is real. The Bible is real. Jesus died for my sins. Because, I mean, come on, we're, we're, we're kind of awesome, right? I'm, we're, I'm a pretty moral person. I'm not that bad. I'm pretty special. I'm a snowflake. I'm awesome. I'm the apple of his eye, which is true. But if you have children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, do you love them because they are always worthy of love? I, actually, I think that the way a godly father, the way a godly mother works, the way a godly grandma works is we love because of something going on inside of us. God has done something in us and we choose to love. God loves sinners like you and me because of who he is. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, so that's your recognition, your honor, your glory, it lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help. Could he have been any more clear? But because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay. Oh my God, for your people and your city, bear your name. I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, he was in the kindergarten room. No? Okay, the angel. Came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. This is mid-afternoon, around three o'clock or so. He explained to me, by the way, another historical note I didn't put in your notes, but this is a fun tidbit. There are a few things that happen in the Old Testament at the time of the evening sacrifice, uh, the exact time of day where Jesus gave up his spirit and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. So God coming to us in the middle of the afternoon is not a one-off. It happens repeatedly. Verse 22. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I am here to tell you what it was, for you are very precious to God. Oh, do you guys hear that? Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. Guys, God being all about his own glory in the nations doesn't mean that you're not precious to him. Those aren't a contradiction. He will defend his glory and he loves you very, very much. Listen carefully so you can understand the meaning of your vision. Verse 24. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven. Is anybody confused yet? Scholars believe these are years. Uh, a, a lot of translations will say weeks, and they believe this usually is a group of seven, a week is a group of seven years, is generally the consensus. A bunch of sevens will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem and tell a ruler, the anointed one, that's in, Messiah in Hebrew, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, 
the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Is that how the apostles felt? It looked like nothing happened. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. That was about a generation later. Titus in AD 70 destroys Jerusalem and the temple. The end will come with a flood. By the way, uh, I know I've said this before, but it's probably been summer since I've, I've said this. Prophetic literature almost always has two or three layers on top of it. So when I say that this is clearly Jesus and this is something clearly that happened 40 years after Jesus, it doesn't mean this stuff can't happen again, okay? So a lot of people's beliefs about how the Antichrist is gonna work is we're gonna see a lot of these forms and a lot of these structures over again and we go, whoa, one prophecy was talking about two things um, that are eerily similar to each other. So uh, a lot of different interpretations on that, but just because it has already happened does not mean it's completely fulfilled. It can absolutely happen again. Uh, I lost my way where I'm at. Oh, okay. Uh, Let me start at the beginning of verse 27 so I'm not in the middle of a sentence. The ruler will make a treaty. Oh, nope, I'm in 26. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. A ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Whoa. So it ends with him getting his comeuppance. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you please teach us the text today? Please teach us and make us a people that walks away different because we came humbly before your word and we listened to you. Don't let us walk away the same, Jesus, with stone hearts. So you can save the lost amongst us, God. Some of us might be here today exploring Christianity and I ask you to show your face beautiful, powerful, and worthy to them. That they might worship you for the first time. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So again, what I just said about something can be fulfilled in its immediate historical context, it might still have, there might still be more meat on the bone for some additional layer of what God is prophesying. Um, Those of you who have notes in front of you, you already know this, but I want to say this out loud because some of you guys don't have notes. If you count the years just talked about in Jewish time, Jewish time operates off of a 30-day month. Um, So if you take 360-day years and account for leap years, the amount of time Uh, in between when Artaxerxes said, go ahead and rebuild the temple. If you count the 483 years from that command, do you know what you get? One guy counted it to the day. Um, you, You arrive at Palm Sunday, where Jesus Christ is coming in on a donkey claiming to be king. Here's your prince. Here's your prince. So again, not saying there can't be some other echo of this, but at the minimum, that's pretty impressive. To you and me, small, small potatoes for God. Very small potatoes for God. But he said there will be a command to rebuild the temple. It will be rebuilt. In tough times, all of this happened. And then what? The, the appearance of Messiah. Was, was anybody else, I believe they said it was April 6th, AD 30. Was anybody else presenting himself to the Jewish people as Messiah on that day? Right? Because Josephus wrote about it. Jesus was the only one. 
<laughs> he was the only one riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem on that particular Sunday. The only one. Go figure. All right. Uh, I'm going way, way long, so to get through these three points, we'll just blitz a little bit. Your first blank. Grab your pen. I'll write this in the margin here. Bible. The right response to God calling out our sin is prayer, fasting, mourning, and confession. The right response to God calling out our sin is prayer, fasting, mourning, and confession. I talked past the uh, discussion question, and I apologize. What I was going to ask you guys to talk with each other about is what are all the things that you have or have not heard over the years about the purpose of fasting? Because here's a little tidbit, uh, as, as I've studied and some teachers have pointed out that I appreciate, in our weight loss culture, we're really excited about the idea of fasting helping to make me skinny. I can get that six pack or whatever it is I'm going for. Um, biblically, fasting is not, um, although it probably always has spiritual benefits, it is not just that I'm going to do this to be a little bit holier out of nowhere with no context. Fasting is always associated with mourning over one's own sins. How loaded is that phrase? I'm not admitting my sins, mourning them. Feeling the sorrow that I have broken God's heart. Oh, how spiritually powerful will we be if we could mourn our own sins? How safe spiritually is this church if we don't have a whole lot of time and energy to be pointing the finger at you? Like, I'll, I'll teach, encourage, rebuke if I have to. But if I would start by removing the plank from my own eye, is what Jesus says to do, it's not that I'm not gonna help you get out of sin. I'm just gonna start with myself. Fasting is like a miniature version of death. I am going without food, sackcloth, ashes, because what I have done to the most high is horrendous. I've tried to say on repeat for a few years now, guys. When we keep staring into scripture to see how big and beautiful and glorious God is, and we keep looking into scripture in our own lives to see how sinful we are, the bigger this gap gets, the greater our view of mercy. Jesus says, those who uh, love, so those who, I'm getting it backwards in my head. The woman, she wipes her, her tears and hair on Jesus' feet. Oh, those who have been forgiven much, love much. There we go. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. That was all tongue in cheek. No one's ever been forgiven little. He's saying, Pharisees, your view of your own sin is so small. You think you're pretty awesome, so you're only a few steps behind the holiness of God. And so a Pharisee, could be you, could be me, we are willing to say Jesus died on a cross to forgive my sins. It's just that I think my sins are about this big, so my view of mercy is about this big. Mercy's the gap between what I deserved and what he gave. That's what mercy is. So brothers and sisters, I have to preach stuff to you you're not gonna like. I have to tell you you're a sinner. I have to, I have to tell myself that I'm a sinner because scripture says it and we won't be as grateful to Jesus as we ought to be until we can see that gap. 
If you've been a Christian for two weeks, your gap might be here. You have this rudimentary understanding that I'm a sinner and God's big, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I've been walking with Jesus for 31 years, 32 years. The more you stare into the scripture, it keeps talking about God being better than you could possibly imagine. It talks about sinners being filthier than they could possibly imagine. That my very best behavior is a filthy menstrual rag thrown up onto the altar, desecrating the temple. My best behavior desecrates the altar of God. You want a heart of gratitude? Keep reading. Just keep reading. He'll make you more and more and more grateful. And I dare say that heaven is eternal because we're gonna need a lot of time to figure out that gap. Second blank. God's greatness and faithfulness are why our sin should break our heart. God's greatness and faithfulness are why our sin should break our heart. <clears throat> the verses I put in parentheticals, 11 verses long, and I can't read it right now. Daniel's constantly reiterating that God has been faithful, God has been good, he's been patient, we're the ones who have sinned. He says it over and over and over. It's his greatness, it's his goodness, it's his mercy, it's his faithfulness, a.k.a. God didn't deserve to be treated this way. We get so wrapped around our rights and whether we're getting what we, we deserve. And the people in scripture who love God the most are obsessed with, is God getting what he deserves? Oh, he's put his name on us. He's called us Christians. Is he getting the honor and renown out of our behavior, thoughts, and passions? Is he getting the trust that he deserves from our prayers? Is he getting what he deserves? My sin breaks my heart because God's been so good. What on earth convinced me to treat him that way? Third, the people of God desperately need God. The people of God desperately need God. I've already preached extensively. I, you can see that right there in the prayer. I'm, I'm not going to belabor it. But I do want to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He was pastoring in London about 160 years ago. Oh God, thy church needs thee above everything else. A poor, little, sick, neglected child needs 50 things. But you can put all those needs into one if you just say the child needs its mother. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So the church of God needs a thousand things, but you can put them all into one if you say the church of God needs her God. We need him. Daniel was not praying to anybody else for mercy, for patience, for deliverance. As the great Tony Evans said once, if you have, if God has a problem with you, if God is your problem, only God can be your solution. Who's, who's, gonna, who's gonna save you from Yahweh if Yahweh is not pleased? Who, who's, who can strong enough to go toe to toe with him? Right? 
And who can stop Yahweh if he decides to bless you? Can anything separate us from the love of God? Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor depth, nothing in all of the earth can separate you from the love of God. Why? Paul doesn't say it in that section, but we know why. God is more powerful than any lesser God. He's more powerful than humans. He's more powerful than demons and angels. If he wants to love you, it's over. He's loved you. That's good news. That's really, really good news. Fourth, we must ask God to save people. Not so we become a large church, but for his glory. We must ask God to save people. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, it lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay. Oh my God, for your people and your city bear your name. Why should he listen and hear and forgive? Because of who he is. Do we still want God to hear and to listen and to forgive sin? Is he still forgiving sin? If he wasn't, we would have heard a trumpet and there would have been some some stuff. There would have been some stuff so big that you don't have to open up your news app because all of humanity can see it in front of their face. Right? That's that's when mercy is no longer being offered. When When the judgment comes at the end, he's been patient for a long, long time. Since that's not happened, since we woke up today here, he is still seeking and saving the lost. The gospel is still going out through his willing vessels to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ through a cross and through an empty tomb. Daniel asked him to save. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, God, it's up to me. I'm gonna single-handedly have to do all of this There is responsibility. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we throw seed. We water seed, that's the gospel. We throw seed that anybody who will listen and some that won't. And we water that seed, but only God brings the growth. And Daniel, right now, his prayer is emphasizing that latter part. Oh, God, seek and save. Do it for the glory of your own name. And so we say here, God, we want Foundation to have a thriving evangelistic ministry. Each of us as individuals who love Jesus and as a family, and we don't want that so that the room is filled and we all go, we're awesome. No, 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 no. When God fills the room through the waters of baptism, he is awesome. He saves. I just got to tell you about it. I had the privilege of telling you about it, or you had the privilege of telling your sister, and you had the privilege of telling your neighbor or your coworker. Brothers and sisters, and I know that this is, we can go wrong with this in a bunch of ways. I want foundation to grow. And I do not want foundation to grow because somebody else got grumpy at somebody who was a brother or sister in Christ and instead of doing conflict resolution, they skipped town and went to a different church. No, I want us to become so in love with Jesus Christ that we grow more bold in telling friends, neighbors, coworkers, and classmates of the goodness of God. And Jesus saves some people 
and they come here so we can disciple them and strengthen them in the Lord and send people out. That, that's, I hope we all want that. I hope we all want that. I'm gonna pray for us. Father, we thank you for the example of our brother Daniel. What a beautiful and spirit-saturated prayer. God, I thank you for your response to his prayer. It's maybe not always what we want. He asks for salvation and you say, yeah, 483 years from now, I'm gonna save. (laughs) It's not always the answer we want, Lord. But it's the perfect answer. Help us to trust you above all else. Help us to cherish you above all else. Father, for the next six and a half days as we live life here in our own Babylon, please fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would love like we are a people who has been loved. In the great name of Jesus, I pray. God's people said. A couple little reminders. Shortly after, there are goodies out in the quad. Go socialize, hang out, make a friend. We do have a missions team meeting in the library in just a little bit. And in a little bit, 30 minutes, 55 and forward will be in the office. That Bible study. Everybody's welcome. It's a misnomer. If you're not 55 yet, you can still come but you might have more fun if you are. So, all right, I love you guys. Have a great week.